Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Father God, I am just so thankful for this time this morning, for the opportunity that we have to come together freely and to worship you. Lord, I pray that you would just take over this time. Lord, that you would take over uh, and, and speak to our hearts. I pray that our hearts are open this morning so that we can hear what it is that you have for us this morning. Lord, take these notes uh, and create something beautiful from this, as I know you can, and I pray you will, Lord. I thank you, Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen. I just jotted down a couple of things uh, from last week in chapter 14. One of the things that really struck me was that kind of the beginning verse, verse 1 of 14, where it says in my Bible here in New King James, it says, you are the children of the Lord. But, but you know, we looked at this in Hebrews, it actually says, beloved children. And I just really love that greeting that he's really kind of reaching out to that, that intimate kind of beloved children. I love you so much. He's saying, I love you so much that I just, I need to tell you these things, beloved children, rather than be a command like, you are the children of the Lord. He said, beloved children. He says, uh, you're going to go into this land. You're going to be different. You're going to be set apart it's different than the people who are in the land before you when you go in there. And one of the ways that you're going to be different is you're going to mourn differently. Last week, remember, we talked about that. Don't cut yourself in the way that the pagans cut themselves in mourning. Don't cut your own bangs. We talked about that. Just good advice overall. Don't give it a try. Um, but if you do, certainly videotape the outcome so that we can all share. Uh, he says, you're going to do things differently than they do things. One of the things is, he, we looked at last week, here are some dietary restrictions for, for the purpose of setting you apart from those who are in the land that you're going into, some dietary restrictions. And we looked at a lot of those last week, like here are the clean animals you can eat, and here are the unclean animals that you shouldn't eat. And this idea of, you know, well, you can eat a cow, but you can't eat an ostrich. Um, and uh, the, the, when I go through these things, and I, and I uh, kind of touched on this last week, is this idea that, you know, I never really wanted to eat ostrich before, but as soon as someone says, you don't eat ostrich, I'm like, well, maybe I want to try a little ostrich. And it all comes from that rebellious place in my heart that I still have in there that sometimes says, I still don't tell me what I can't do. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what I can't do because I can do it. I'm the boss of me. I'm the boss of me is what my heart says too often. I should be the captain of my own destiny, except for I'm a Christian, which means I've surrendered, as we just sang, my life over to Christ. So now he's the captain of my destiny. He's the one that says, don't eat ostrich. Now, actually, later on, Jesus will remove dietary restrictions and see what, what Moses was saying uh, was that these dietary restrictions, this is what's going to set you apart. Later on, Jesus will come back in and he says, it's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles him, but what comes out. He's going to say, it's no longer the dietary restrictions that are going to separate you, but it's the Holy Spirit and his presence in your life. That's what's going to separate you going forward. And that's where we're at now. See, the Bible doesn't hold me to a dietary restriction saying, if I want to go and eat ostrich, I can. I'm not gonna. But I could if I wanted to. 
Because the dietary restrictions are not what separate you and I now. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life that separates me from the world, the unbelieving world around me. We also got to talk a little bit about tithing. If you were here last week, you're just like, oh man, my first time there, and already talking about tithing. We never talk about giving money to the church here, ever. If you ever want to, there is a box in the back of the church, and that's about as close as we get. There's a box in the back, and you could put a tithe, uh, an offering in there if you like, but we don't pass a plate. We don't talk about this unless it's in the Word, which it was last week. But, but it's, there's important distinctions here that we got to talk about um, in, in the idea of the, the tithe. See, tithe means tenth. And so there's this, this whole almost theology that has been developed around you must give a tenth of your money. But, uh, and so, um, so many people start to get so like wrapped up in their heads. Okay, I, I, you know what? The Bible says that I have to give a tenth of my money. So let's see now. Let's see. A tenth, is that before taxes or after taxes? And, and what if, what? Why do they do that, by the way? Why do you lick the tip of a pencil before? That's just gross. I see it in the movies all the time, but I don't understand it at all. You know, if, well, okay, well, let's say I give 3% to uh, a guy that I saw on TV last night. Does that mean that I only have 7% left that I actually have to give back to God? And, uh, I mean, is God a tax-deductible organization? Because when I... God is saying, if you're trying to qualify your 10%, you're missing the picture here. You're missing it. See, actually, here in chapter 14, the tithe wasn't even money. It was uh, uh, of what you have. He was basically saying, you uh, uh, take what you have, and from that, you're going to make uh, an offering, a tithe to me. But here's the crazy part, okay? And I think sometimes we forget this, is because we think sometimes of the tithe as a transaction between, well, us and God. This is a financial transaction between us and God. And sometimes people even start to think of their tithe as the price of admission to come to church. Well, I'm coming in, I'm paying, I'm putting money in the box. Now I get a show. Wow, that was a good. It's not a transaction. Your tithe isn't a financial transaction. It's actually an opportunity to worship. In fact, in 14, what we looked at, if you remember, is what he said is bring your tithe to the place that I've set aside, and then we'll cook it and eat it together in worship together. And so it was like, instead of it being a transaction, God's saying, it's not a transaction. It's an opportunity for you to come and partake with me. It's not bring your tithe. Even if it was grain or lamb or oil or wine or whatever it was, it wasn't bring it, give it, and leave. It was bring it Let's partake of it together, you and God, furthering that idea that your tithe, what he's calling you to give, is a transact, not a transaction, but a relationship and, and, and uh, uh, worship between you and God. And it's so important that we get that. With so many, look, it's not as if I'm, you know, so many times I've heard like people say, well, you know, I actually went to a church once that once you became like a member, they wanted your financial records so they could check to see, well, are you giving your 10%? Because, you know, and to us really is what they're saying. It's like, well, you know, or you might hear on TV, someone says, well, you know, God needs your, God needs your tithe. As if somehow God's going to have to have a going out of business sale if he doesn't get your tithe. It's like everything must go. 
God doesn't need your money. We don't need your money, really. This is God's church. If God wants to keep it going, he'll keep it going. If God wants to close the doors, he'll close the doors. We are, your tithe is your worship to God. It is your part in relationship to God. It's not so that we can keep our doors open. God does that. Um, but again, if you want to worship God, there's a box in the back. It's, <laughs> I know. <laughs> the idea of the 10th is so crazy because, I, I mean, I know where it comes from. And I know in the Bible you can come and point to the 10th. But see, what happens is people start to get hung up and say, okay, it's a 10th. I have to give a 10th. That's not so bad, a 10th. God doesn't want a 10th, actually. He wants seven sevenths. Seven sevenths. If you're not a math person, that means he wants 100%. See, God says, I want every single one of your days. All seven of those days are in the week. They're mine. Give them to me. Worship me every day. I want seven sevenths, not a tenth. Right? So if you're wrapped up on the tenth, let that go and worship God However you feel God is calling you to give. Remember we talked about the temple. It says that when God gave them everything that they had coming out of Egypt. Remember they were, they were slaves. What did they have? Nothing. When he called them out of Egypt, they literally barely had the clothes they were wearing. But God caused all the Egyptians to give them stuff as they were leaving. And God provided everything that they had. And then when they got out, God said, okay, um, now we're going to build a tabernacle. I'd love for you to give some of that back so that we can build this. We need jewels and gold and silver and wood and, and, and fibers and, and red thread and purple thread. And we need all this stuff. And it said there that they gave as everyone was willing in their heart to give. God will later, Jesus will later say, through Paul, <laughs> um, that God loves a cheerful giver. Don't give grudgingly. It's, it's like God is saying, look, if, if every time you write a check and you painfully tear it out of your checkbook and you very uh, reluctantly slide it into the box that's in the back of the church, if I haven't mentioned it, he says, if you're doing it grudgingly, don't. Don't. Because that's not what he wants. He wants you to worship through it. In fact, they were supposed to come. If you see here, it says, bring your offering, uh, feast on it in the presence of God where he told you to come and worship. And here's the most important part. You are to <gasps> rejoice. Tithing to God and worship should cause you to rejoice, not to be a grudge. <laughs> Don't be a grudge. It was about bringing something and partaking. Then at the end of the chapter, what was really, I, I thought was such a cool part of the chapter last week, was every third year was like the special feast time where they're supposed to gather up all of the, all of the, the um, uh, worst, uh, <laughs> sacrifice that they had, the, the grain and the, and the oil and the wine and the, and the lamb or whatever it was. There. And within their gates, they were to eat it with all of those, the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, all together, they were supposed to have this great big feast day within their gates, which was such a neat opportunity for them to share in the lives of those who maybe they wouldn't otherwise mix with during the other years. And uh, what, what, a, what a really neat way, because he would say, when you share a meal with somebody, you share your life with them, you with them, them with you. Uh, they would have these big bowls and, and, and pots of stuff and they would break off bread and they would dip it in and they would eat it and another person would dip it in and they would eat it and then they would dip again. <laughs> and it was a way that you were sharing 
life, sharing stories, getting to know people who you wouldn't otherwise get to know. And guess what? We get to do that today. Today, actually, in this church, because we're having a soup potluck. Now, I will be coming around with my bread and dipping it in everyone's bowl just to get to know you better today. I actually don't suggest that, but, but sit with people you don't know, talk to people you don't know, share stories and get to know one another. It's a really beautiful time, and God was saying, I'm going to make time for it every three years. I'm going to make a time for it so that you don't forget to get involved in other people's lives. Chapter 15. This is an incredible chapter, and God really showed me some neat things here. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it, and he shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother because it is called the Lord's release. And so you have to understand um, what he's saying is when you go in, anyone who lends anything to anyone, at the end of seven years, you need to free them from that debt, release them from their debt, which was uh, really... uh, It's really quite something what God is calling them to do. He's calling them to be extraordinarily generous to each other. Um, You have to understand a couple of things. First of all, um, he's saying this to them as they are going into a land. And while they're, once they go in there, that's their first opportunity to actually own property. If you think about it really, because we forget that sometimes before they were slaves And in the last 40 years, they've been nomads, basically moving from place to place. And so they haven't been farming, really. God has provided manna every single day while they were in in, uh, the wilderness for 40 years. He supplied the water. He's even supplied the clothing. He said he didn't let their clothes wear out that entire time. God has provided everything for them every single day. But he's saying when you go in, there's going to be a division of the land. This tribe will get this land. This tribe will get this land. This tribe will get this land. And once they set they're mostly going to be farmers with some tradespeople worked in there. And so he's telling them, when you go in and when you find yourself farming the land, there will be times when a crop is not going to come in for somebody. All right. This is what we're talking about in terms of the types of loans, because we'll say, well, you know, creditors and loans, we see that immediately we start thinking about a contemporary example of creditors and loans here. But we're not talking about loans that were like to start a business or buy a car or get a mortgage. We were not talking about those kinds of loans here. We're not talking about professional creditors. The word creditor here is anyone who loans anyone anything. That's in Hebrew. It's, that's what it means. So what he's saying is, When you go into this land and everybody is given some property and now they farm that property in order to grow a crop so that they can harvest the crop, provide for their family, use that crop to buy seed for next year's crop so they can do the whole thing all over again. If something happens where that person isn't able to bring in a crop and now they need help, you help them. You help them. In fact, in Deuteronomy 23, he's going to say, if you loan something to anybody, don't charge interest. You're basically saying, here's what you need. You can pay me back over time. But at the end of seven years, that seventh year, I'm going to release you from this debt. That was understood. Now, if you're someone who borrows, that's a pretty good deal. 
If you're a person who's loaning, that seventh year could be scary, don't you think? You'd be like, because like, he's going to later on, he's going to say, don't let that evil thought come into your head. When you see someone coming towards you that you know is going to want to borrow, and it's year five, and you're like, man, if, I'm, if I loan this guy, I'm only going to get back like 20% of what I loaned him. And God says, it's an evil thought, and don't let that enter your heart. You give it to him. And later he's going to even address what you do after that. But he's saying here that if, you, if anyone comes of need, you give to them. And you loan to them, but at the end of that time, at the end of that seven years, you release them. It's called the Lord's release. But you know what in Hebrew, you know what it says? You release them to Yahweh. I really love that because the Lord's release makes it sound like a neat and tidy little title of a program. But really what it's saying is, you know what? You don't worry about it. You just give it up to God. Just give it up to God. Help them. Work out an arrangement for them to pay you back. But in the seventh year, if they've not paid you back fully, you release them from the debt and you give it up to God. You know, that seventh year, I'm sure it was scary for those people who have loaned out to a friend or a neighbor and they're thinking, but, but God, what if I get to the end of the year and I don't have enough for me to provide for my family? You're telling me that I've got to release them, but what if it causes me to become poor? You know, the, the really cool thing is that God said, you're going to let the land rest every seventh year. So if you're a farmer, you were supposed to let that land rest anyway, right? And it said, it says uh, in Leviticus 25, 20, 25, it says that God will actually triple the harvest in that sixth year to not only provide for that year, but the year after when the land is at rest, and then the year after that, while the rested land is growing again, God said, I will provide for you. Even though you're working a farm, I'm still gonna provide. If, as long as you do as I ask and let the land rest, I will provide triple the amount in that harvest so that you don't have anything to worry about. If you're loaning someone, if you're helping someone, I will provide for you. He also says that, you know what? there's going to be crops that grow up that seventh year, even though you're not out planting and harvesting and all that crop is still going to grow up. And so you're free to eat of whatever grows up in that field. So I honestly do believe that probably there were times when, when they had a fuller harvest in that seventh year all on its own. God says, I will provide you don't have to worry. He's calling them to be extraordinarily generous. You know, when you planted a crop, there were any number of reasons why you could lose a crop. Anybody ever see Little House on the Prairie? Happens all the time to that family. They print out, they got a crop, it's all going great, and then hail comes and knocks it all down, and they're done. And they're done. And this could happen. Too much rain, not enough rain. A family member could die, who, so you have no way to harvest your, your crop. There could be a military action that happens between two uh, nations on your piece of property and your whole crop could be crushed and down. And then where do you find yourself? You find yourself at, in need of help from your neighbors. And so they're establishing extraordinary generosity. I love this idea of every seventh year, debt was forgiven. Not just debt, but all debt was forgiven. The seventh year, all debt was forgiven. Now, I'm not a numbers guy, <laughs> but seven often is a number that's in connection to God. 
Six is the number of man, the Bible says. The seven is that number of God, that perfection, that number that is seven is perfection. That's God's number. And it's no surprise to me to see that he is saying in the seventh year, in that perfect year, in God's year, all debt is forgiven. Well, I like that message because what I know is that Jesus came, God in the form of man, to earth, and he forgave all debt by going to the cross for us. Because I love when God says, hey, here's a, here's a practical thing, an actual thing going on in the Old Testament, but it has profound meaning to us New Testament folks. So we can look at that and say, our debt still was forgiven by that God that came, that perfect God. Well, he says that uh, you're supposed to uh, release it to God. Of the foreigner you may require, but you shall give up your claim to whatever is owed to you by your brother, except when there be no poor among you. For the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord God is giving you to, pro- to, to p- possess as an inheritance. It's, it's like, if all goes well, and there isn't anybody who needs help, that's what he's talking about, except when there is no poor among you. It also is not saying if someone, one of your neighbors borrows something from you, they don't have to give it back to you. Like if someone borrows my power washer, I expect that power washer back again, even after seven years. This is talking about someone who falls into poverty because, uh, because of some circumstance that has happened. Only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe with care all of these commands which I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised you and you shall lend to many nations but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations but you shall not, they shall not reign over you. So he was giving them th- th- these very literal instructions. Don't, you can lend to other nations but don't borrow. And so uh, there's this idea, like I maybe read a statistic or heard somebody else teach this, and they said, well, you know what? The United States used to be the biggest lender in the world. Somehow, though, we've switched to the other side, and now we're like one of the biggest borrowers. Um, And that might be interesting, but I I see a a bigger picture here and what God is telling to them that is in context to what we've been looking at. See, he's saying you can lend, but you can't borrow. He's telling them, don't mourn the way the pagans mourn. Don't worship the way the pagans mourn. Don't take on any of the things, the practices, the rituals that they do and make them part of your rituals, your practices. But what he would say is, but share what you know with those out there. Lend your beliefs, lend them your practices, lend them your rituals so that they can see what it is and why it is that you believe what you believe. And that feels very uh, within context of what he's saying, but it's also a great message because he's saying to us, don't take on the practices and the beliefs that the world around you is taking on. Rather, lend to them what it is that you believe. Lend to them what it is that you, who you worship. And isn't that what it is that we're called to do? Take what we have, our faith, and lend it, share it with those around us. In fact, um, in the New Testament, it says, you know, Jesus would say this. He goes, no one takes a lamp 
and lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Rather, they take that lamp and they put it on a lampstand so that everybody else can see that lamp. And so that's the question then. Are we lending? Are we lending what we believe, our faith? Are we sharing it with the people around us? Or are we just like, no, this is mine. You do you. But I got mine. And it's good for me. And I'll, I'll, I'm going to heaven. I don't know about you. You know how to get to heaven? Do you know how to get to heaven? Yeah. Now share it. Share it. Do you love people? Do you love people, gang? You could say yes. It's okay. Yeah. <laughs> if you love people, you will tell them how to get to heaven. Because if you don't tell them, how will they hear? And if they don't hear, where are they going? They're going to hell. Do you love people enough so that they don't go to hell? I don't even know some of you. But I love you enough to tell you that Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. So if you haven't accepted Jesus, you're going to hell. And I'm really sorry for that, but I'm glad you just heard it. I'm glad you heard it. I love you enough to tell you the truth, even if it offends you. If there is any among you a, uh, a poor man or of your brother, and this is verse 7, within any of your gates in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from the poor, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Again, extraordinary generosity. That's what he is calling them to, extraordinary generosity. I mean, what prevents us from being extraordinarily generous? Maybe it's different for everybody. Maybe, I, I don't know, maybe you're, maybe you're that person that thinks, but if I give to them, will I have enough? If I give to them, will I have enough? If I give more than 10%, and God says, try me. You know, he actually literally does say that. He says, this is the only place in the Bible where he says, you know what, test me and see if that's not true. Test me and see if that is not true. If you are extraordinarily generous, will I not bless you? Test me and see. He says that. You brave enough to do that? <laughs> you trust God enough to do that? Give it a shot. We're supposed to be extraordinarily generous. Then he says in verse 9, beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, saying the seventh year, the year of release, is at hand, and your eye be evil against the poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you, and it become a sin among you. And you shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all of your works and in all to which you put your, to your, put your hand to. He says, don't you dare. Don't you dare look at that person and say, you know what? I'm not going to get back what I give because we're almost at this year of release. Like, hey, you know what? Catch me next year. And then, hey, we can work something out. God says, don't you dare let that into your heart. It's wicked. Wicked. In fact, he says, give. Even in Naples, we see people who need help. Now, this is my own personal conviction. I'm just going to tell you what it is, and I'm not saying you have to do it this way. And maybe you have your own reasons, and maybe you have your own excuses. But when I see somebody who's got a sign or sitting along the side of the road or whatever it is, what I used to say to myself is, well, I'm not going to give them money because they're just going to go out and buy booze and drugs and do whatever. 
That was my conviction. But after I've been spending a lot of time with the Lord, what he's been saying to me is, this is what I want you to do. I want you to pray right now and see if I don't tell you to give that person money. And if I do tell you and you give it to them, you don't worry about what they're going to do with it. You just do what I call you to do. Just do what I call you to do. And then what they do with that is between them and God. And so God calls me to be extraordinarily generous in that way, whereas I see somebody and I feel as though God is saying, give to them. I pray and then I give. And then you know what I do? I pray some more. And I say, Lord, I don't know what they're going to do with that. And I don't know if they're going to run off and buy booze or drugs. And maybe they will, but maybe they won't. And I just open my hand wide, it says, and I give. All I would encourage you in that is to do the same in the sense that you pray and ask God for direction. And then when he gives it to you, you do what it is he calls. Because he may say, no, don't give to that person. He actually may say, I'm doing something extraordinary in that person's life, and I'm using this time of leanness to bring them to a place of of, uh, repentance. So don't jump in between me and them. But you're only going to know that if you're asking God to reveal that to you, and you're only going to be able to hear from God if you actually know him, if you recognize his voice in your life, which means you have to spend time with him, right? You cannot be healthy because you eat a salad once a week. Trust me, (laughs) you need a regular diet of the good stuff, right? So you want to hear from the Lord in in every case. You need to be in the word. You need to be in his presence. You need to be talking and praying and listening to him. And he will direct you. But I'm telling you, he wants us to be, he wants to stretch us in our generosity towards one another. He wants to stretch you and he wants to say, "Do do you trust me enough to be extraordinarily generous. Again, gang, I'm not just talking about money. You get it? Is that coming across? It's your time. It's your love. It's your attitude. If you're just like, here, take it. Go and buy booze, whatever. I don't care. Love, do you love that person enough? Beware, he says, for the poor will never cease to be from the land. You know what? I highlighted that in my Bible because when I read, the poor will always be with us is basically what it's saying. The poor will always be with us. But you know what that says to me? God is saying there will always be opportunity for you to exercise generosity to someone. There will always be opportunity for us to be extraordinarily generous. Always. And he's going to remind them in just a little bit. He's going to say, hey, in case you forgot, you also once were poor. You had nothing. You were a slave, and I was extraordinarily generous to you. So now you be extraordinarily generous to those around you. And, oh, by the way, that could be you next year if your crop fails. I love this. He says, therefore, I command you, this is verse 11, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor, to your needy in your land. So, so do you see what he does there? He doesn't say the poor the needy. He says, you're poor, you're needy. I looked that up in Hebrew just to see if that's really what it says. And you know what it says? It says you, the poor of you, the needy of you. So he's saying that we all have a responsibility to take care of those who are in need. 
It's, it happens in different ways. Again, it's not always you giving them money on the side of the road. Maybe it's you get out of your car and you go over and say, hey, what's going on? Can I pray for you? I actually, there was a woman I saw just this week who's on the, had a sign, uh, had it all written out, had pictures of little kids, I assumed were hers. Um, and I got out and I went over and I, talk, I tried to talk to her. But she didn't really speak English. I think she was like, I don't know why I think Albanian or Ukrainian. It sounded like that. And uh, I was trying to talk to her and I was trying to say, can I, can I pray with you? And she was like, I, she doesn't understand me at all. So anyway, I, I prayed with her. I gave her some money and I left. And I, I honestly, I, I, God started to speak to me afterwards. Like that, I don't think that was her family. I don't think those were her kids. I honestly actually think that she's maybe wrapped up in something much bigger and beyond her control. Um, and I started just seriously praying for her because I feel like maybe she's being trafficked. Because I haven't seen her since. But I'm praying for her. Her name is Yanella. So if you think about it, pray for Yanella because I don't know where she is, but God got a hold of me and he told me to help her and he told me to pray for her, which I did. But he started to tell me that there was something more than just her trying to feed her kids. Um, and I don't know why I share that with you, just that maybe you can pray for Yanella. He says in verse 12, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. So you have to understand, there was... Uh, an opportunity for someone who falls into poverty and has just no way to pay back their debt that they could sell themselves or be sold into uh, servitude for a seven-year period, a six-year period, really, so that they would then go and kind of work off their debt to the whomever they owed uh, money to. And that's what this is talking about, is that they could go and they could be a servant for hire, basically, to somebody. Um, and But in that seventh year, their debt was forgiven, and so they were to be let go. Now, that's slightly different. This was, they would serve six years and be at least seven. The other one was, it was a rotation of seven years, okay? So this wasn't like, oh, we take on a servant in year five and have to let them go. They actually had to serve out the six years, but in that seventh year, they were released from their debt. And when you send him away, free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed, but you shall supply him liberally from your flock and from the threshing floor, from your wine press, from what the Lord God has blessed you with, you shall give to him. And so at the end of those six years in that seventh year, not only were you to release them from the debt, but you were actually supposed to give that person, it says give liberally. In Hebrew, it literally means place a necklace. Uh, um, so the, the, uh, the indication is that you were to give them a gift. This was not a loan to them because think about it. They, if you just release them, if they were, they were in, in such an impoverished state that they had to sell themselves. They had to put themselves into uh, servitude for six years. That was because they didn't have anything. Okay. Now they just worked for you for six years to pay off the debt that they owed, that they haven't had a chance to save anything in that six years. So if you turn them free in that seventh year, you're turning them back into a position of being poor with not being able to sort themselves or their family or anything. And so he says, Moses says here, uh, 
you give to them a gift of everything that they're going to need to get started. Well, they serve you for six years, and in that seventh year, you let them go. Right? That is extraordinary generosity to say, I know, you, you know you've worked for me for six years, um, and uh, so now it's time to let you go, and here, here. Here, and take this, and take, you know, here's a, and that, and, and go, and let me bless you on your way. And God reminds them, you bless them as God has blessed you. You bless them and send them on their way. And, you know, like, and I was kind of thinking, like, well, why the whole six years of servitude thing? Why not just in that first year say, you know what, I'm just going to give you a gift, here is wheat and oil and, and wine, and, and here's a, sh- a, a lamb, and here you go. I'm just going to bless you in this first year so you don't have to do any of this service or anything. And why wouldn't God have just said, just do that? Then nobody has to serve anybody. I think there's some value in this, actually. I think there's, number one, there's value in them um, building relationship. After six years, there was relationship that was formed rather than this is just this guy that lives in my town that I just gave a bunch of wheat and, and lent to. Now it's a guy that you've gotten to know for six years and you've grown in relationship with that person. So now they're not a stranger. They're a brother or a sister. And isn't God, we've been talking about this, the goal of God is relationship with each other, all of us together, but also with him, ultimately, relationship is always the goal. And so he sets this up so it will have many purposes. It will help you. It will help them. They'll be blessed after six years. And you've just gained a brother or a sister in the process of that time. And now you're releasing them to go out. Then in 15, he says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day this thing. And, and it says, and if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you because he loves you and your, and your house since he prospers with you, then you shall take an all and thrust it through his ear to the door and he shall be your servant forever. Also to the female servant, you shall do likewise. And so if your servant at the end of six years is like, you know what? I've been here for six years. This is actually really great. We've, we've grown to know each other. What you can offer me is better than anything that I think I could find out there on my own. You're to say, all right, come on over to the doorpost and let me get a spike and, and I'm going to, and, and, and I'm going to, yeah. And essentially what they would do is they would take them over to the, the, the door and they would put their earlobe against it, and they would take out an awl, which is like a, a leather working tool, and they would knock a hole in their ear, <laughs> and then they would put an earring, a ring of gold, through their ear. They put a ring of gold, and it was an indication that they were a bond servant, a bond servant of this master, which was someone who was saying, I chose, I've chosen to remain a servant of this master because this master has more to offer me and and better than anything that I could actually kind of accomplish or do on my own. It's such an amazing picture that Paul and James, especially in their New Testament letters, refer to themselves as bond servants of Christ because it's the same thing. They looked at what Christ had for them and they said, 
Anything that God has to offer me, anything that Jesus is offering me as my master is better than anything that I could do for myself out there. Now, they didn't literally, Paul and James, go through and knock a hole in their ear and put a ring in their ear. But think about it. God says, as an indication of your being a servant of of this master, you're going to put a gold ring in your ear. I mean, that gold is the is is. The, the thing, right? The streets of heaven are gold. God, it's God's metal gold, but it's a ring also, so there's no beginning and no end, right? It was like, I'm putting the indication that God is my master. I'm a bondservant of the Lord, right? What an incredible picture that is for us as well to say anything that Jesus has is way better, than anything that I could accomplish on my own. And I will be a bond servant to the Lord. You see, the thing is what they realized at that time was that it wasn't that freedom that they were pursuing. It was they were looking for the right master. And it's still the same. It's still the same. See, it's not about pursuing freedom. It's about finding the right master. You know, we know that we will serve something. You think you have freedom, but you will serve something. Maybe it's a, 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 an ambition, a position, a job, a relationship. It's just money. Maybe it's an addiction that you found yourself in. You're, you're serving the addiction. We will all seek to serve something. It's not about finding freedom. It's about finding the right master, and Jesus is that master. Jesus is the master that we want to become bond servants of. And it says here, forever forever because everything that he has anything that he has is better than anything that we can find out there and we want to we want to you know what I, I suggest that you all go out and get your ear pierced with a gold ring <laughs> no you know what that's i mean that wasn't like going to claire's and getting your ear pierced by the way i mean you're talking about a leather tool and a doorpost and no ice or a potato or anything like that that was a serious Commitment, but it is a serious commitment, isn't it? So then he says, uh, 18, it shall not seem too hard to you when you send him away for free from you, for he has been worth double hired servant in the serving of you six years, and then the Lord will bless you in all that you do. All the firstborn males that come from your herd and your flock, you shall sanctify to the Lord you are God, and you shall do no work with that firstborn herd, nor shall you shear the born of your flock. And so every firstborn of their flock, they were to turn over to God, every firstborn. So if you had uh, cattle uh, or ox or sheep, whatever, the firstborn had to be given over to God as a sacrifice. And, and it's saying you can't use it first. You can't, like, if it's born and you're not up on that feast time yet, you just have to keep that thing separate. You can't say, oh, well, this, but this ox is firstborn, but he's really strong. Let me just get a couple of months' use out of it, and then I'll give it to God. Or, you know what? I have to shear this sheep. I mean, look, I, I, I could shear the sheep and use that wool. And he's saying, no, it's supposed to be completely set apart for what you offer to God. It's completely set apart. You can't use it first. And you and your household shall eat it before the Lord your God by year in the place where the Lord God chooses. And that was the idea of like, you would bring it to God in an offering. But part of that offering wasn't, I'm gonna give it to God and then leave. It was, I'm bringing it to God, I'm gonna give it to him, but then we all get to partake of the feast. But if there's a defect in it, it says, 
If it's lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Why would he need to say that? Why, why would God feel like he had to say to them, I want your firstborn, but if there's something wrong with it, I don't, I don't, don't give it to me. Don't offer that to me. Because there's, there's part of us, I think, and, and I think God knew, knew them well and he knows us well, that would look at that and say, okay, well, I know I have to give to God, but I mean, like, rather than say, let me give my absolute best to God, what do I have left over? <laughs> What am I not really going to use? I don't know, I'm not really using this. God, you can have this. What's left? After I've, I've done everything that I want to do, after I've bought everything that I want to buy, after I've done everything, what's left? And whatever I have left, that's what I'll give to God. And God says, well, I want the first, not the last. And not just the first, but I want the best. Because he deserves it, don't you think? Don't you think? He says, if, it's, if it has a defect... If it's blind, if it's lame, if it's missing a leg, he says, you eat that. So this is what he says in the next verse. He goes, you can eat it. Like, if you want to eat it, go ahead and eat it. But don't offer it to me as a sacrifice if there's something wrong with it. It's like, like, I want your best. I want your first. I don't want your leftovers. You know what that, you know, God really grabbed a hold of me on that, especially because um, you know, we talk about reading the word and spending time with God and all this stuff, but how often does that happen to be in the time I have left over? You know, how often is it, um, well, I guess I've done everything I need to do today. I, got, I have like seven or eight minutes left. Let me, get the, let, me, let me just quickly do this daily devotional and just read it through rather than to say, God, I'm going to give you, I, I'm, I'm going to give you my best, my first like how often do we do that with our time, with our attention, even with our love for God? It's, okay, here's what I have left over today. God would say, that I don't want that. I want your first. I want your best. You may, if, if, if you have an animal that you're going to sacrifice and it's not perfect, he says, you could still eat it within your gates. The unclean and the clean person alike may eat it, but... Um, but but uh, not offer it to me. And verse 23, though, he reminds them, if you're going to eat it, if you're going to eat an animal, we talked about this before, he says, you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it on the ground like water. So he's saying, remember, we talked about God says, don't eat the blood. The blood is life, and life Belongs to me, God says. So you don't eat the blood. You don't eat the life. The life is mine. It belongs to me. So he says, pour it out on the ground like water. They had to prepare it in a certain way. But essentially, and I I keep saying this line because God spoke to me about this. He, He says, you take the blood of that and you pour it out. Pour out the blood. It struck me last night when I was looking at this because today is communion. And, uh, and we're going to prepare to do that in a minute. We're going to take communion together. And, and there's so many really neat things here. We see we've got like the, the communion supper together that we celebrate as a family with Jesus. And then we actually do this on the same day that we have supper together as a church as well, which all kind of works out very nice. But um, there was something in Luke twenty two twenty where Jesus literally has gathered all of his disciples together for this 
Passover and he says, I've so desired to eat this with you. He says when he picks up the cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Just like he's saying that when you take this animal and you cut its throat and you let the blood be poured out before you eat it, Jesus would say, my blood is poured out for you, returned back to God. So we're going we're gonna to take communion this morning. So um, I'm going to pray. Band's going to come up. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you so much for this day, for your word, for these things that you've brought to our attention. Lord, I pray for the hearts that were softened up to receive what it is for you that you had for them. Lord, I thank you for the celebration of communion. I pray that as we celebrate this today together, we remember uh, what it was that you did for us, Lord, that you forgave all of our debts. Lord, that you uh, have allowed us to remain bondservants in your house forever. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org.